There we go. Hey guys, sorry for the delay. I was trying to get this mic to work and it just kept going live and it didn't actually launch. But then I switched to my headset here and it worked fine. So not, not sure why that was happening. Anyway, if, uh, if a few of you could just type in yes that you can hear me, then we can go ahead and get started. Uh, but I just want to confirm that you guys, in the meantime, I'm just going to have a little bit of water here. Somebody could type in yes that you can hear me. So there's really no point if you can't hear me, right? I'm just going to take a drink from my uh, InventRite mug right here. Great. I'm glad you guys can hear me. Okay, so um, my name is Andrew Krause. I co-founded InventRite about 21 years ago now with Stephen Key, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. Um, we were pretty small back in the day. I was our our only coach. And now we have 10 coaches and a negotiation coach and a whole bunch of other people in the company to help folks out. So I'm very proud of that. Um, I think it was at September, it was September, October, but it was September. We had 11 students license 11 products in one month, which was really cool. I was very proud of that. Um, this whole thing, InventRight thing, didn't happen overnight. This is something that Steve and I built up over two decades. And um, anyway, so today what we're going to do is talk about licensing, which is what InventRight does. It's the one thing InventRight does. And for those of you that are brand new, licensing means it's the big company's money. You don't need, I need to raise money. I need funds. No, you don't, because now it's that big company's product. So they have unlimited funds and lines of credit. Um, if your product does well, they're not going to run out of money. These companies are pretty big. Yeah, sometimes our students will do deals with smaller companies where they could be financially thin, even for a successful product, but that's usually not the type of company you want to license to. But anyway, so you get the money, you get the workforce, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, maybe they have 80 products already, you plug your product into their product line, and they have that machine, they have all that, those folks to, to take care of business. Because um, it's not just about getting your product on the shelf, it's about keeping it there. Um, and then Existing distribution. When you're licensing, if they're in 30,000 stores, you're in 30,000 stores. So that's a beautiful thing, um, really is. So you tap into existing money, existing workforce, and existing distribution. You don't need to start a company. All right, that's the big benefit of licensing. So um, let's go ahead. I'm going to start uh, answering some of your questions. Type your questions into the GoToWebinar um, chat box. Anything that I share tonight should not be considered legal advice, so please consult with an attorney before moving forward on anything. Um, it's just general business advice, uh, and you're the one that makes all the final decisions, not, not us. So it's just for education. Um, JCH Express, hi, Andrew. Could you share your knowledge about the skincare industry, lotions, creams, et cetera, in terms of breaking into, please? Um, have a really good product idea, but it appears uh, very competitive. Yes, I would say it's a very competitive industry, um, but there's a huge market there, um, and people just always want that next lotion or cream that's going to solve their, their problem. Um, so I think you can definitely license that area. We have people licensed in that area before. Um, what you want to know, breaking it into it. I mean, the way you break into any industry, including that one, is just to work on your first product. So if you're going to reach out to 20 or 30 companies, when, say, you got 30 companies and 28 say no, but you move forward with those two, 
Maybe one falls off and you end up doing a deal with one. But the 28 that said no, you, you say, oh, are you open to other ideas? And so the best way to break into an industry is to show them your first product. That's your introduction. They may not be interested in that product, but they have a nice presentation. You were easy enough to work with via email. You weren't saying crazy things like some inventors do. And, you know, you move forward with it. So the best way to break into that industry is just to work on a project in that industry. Um, formulations and things, you know, you can patent those or a method of manufacturing if it's a method that you're going to use to make it. Um, so yeah, you can work in that industry without a doubt. Um, so Spencer says, Hey, Andrew, my question is if an existing product says, a, say, he's just giving examples, say a trailer jack, uh, can be attached and is essential to how your invention works. Can that hurt your invention? chances of being licensed or patenting. Um, so your question is, if an existing product like a trailer jack can be attached and is essential, essential to how your invention works, can your chances be heard of licensing? So what, what, what Spencer's asking, which a lot of people ask, is like, well, my product's going to require Velcro or going to require this mechanism, but I have a new part of it. So you have to realize, folks, that a lot of patents, most products don't have a patent. And so like if there's a trailer jack, I have a trailer. I've always had an electric jack, but I have a travel trailer and, and I put the, push the button, it goes up. But then the old ones, the, the crank ones, right? So I'm not saying this is true, but my guess is when you see, God knows how many people have those trailer jacks, when you see a ton of people having them, it's probably public domain by now. If somebody had a patent, it ran out or nobody ever patented it. If you print, put something in the marketplace and it's in there more than a year and you don't get a patent on it, it's public domain forever, you know? So, uh, so you have to realize Spencer that um, a lot of the pieces you're going to use are public domain. Like for instance, um, if your product required Velcro, well, there's generic hook and loop fastener, which is what Velcro is essentially. So any manufacturer can buy that and put it on their product and they don't need like Velcro's permission to sew some Velcro into a shirt or something like that. If they want to use their brand name or something, but most of the time you're going to use generic hook and loop fastener instead of Velcro. So um, it's, it's, it's usually almost never a problem with, for our students. So, um, but obviously Spencer, without talking about that's which we can't do, because oh, which brings me to my other point, don't share anything in the chat that's not already publicly available. But it brings me to my point, you know, it's like you can, you can totally work on products that include other products. And most, more than likely, if you see litmus tests, if you see like eight or nine other companies, like having that component, there's probably no pattern. I'm not saying don't check but it's rarely, rarely an issue. So, but without knowing your specifics product, Spencer, and what I was gonna say is don't disclose that here because this is a public um, forum. Um, I, I can't answer it specifically without knowing your specific product, but at least the general answer helped you and everybody else a bit. Um, Michael says, what kinds of delays can a person expect when it comes to manufacturing in China uh, when the Chinese New Year hits? So, um, for the most part, it's really not that much of an issue. Um, what I can tell you right now that our students are experiencing and have been for a little while under the pandemic um, is it's a taking 
it's taking the so the, the you know as an inventor you license to a company let's say it's a company that sells coffee mugs and the company's like ooh your coffee mugs kind of different and by the way i only have water in here it's way too late to drink coffee but <laughs> um your product's a little different we're going to need to get some quotes from our contract manufacturer in china okay it's probably a bad example i don't know if they make coffee mugs in china but you get the idea and so what's happening when your potential licensee, the manufacturer you're trying to license to, because most of them don't have captive plants, they get stuff made in China, just like everybody else. Maybe it's a captive plant, maybe it's a shared plant, doesn't matter. But when they're trying to get quotes on stuff to make sure that it's cost effective to manufacture, they're taking longer to do that. And thus the deals that our students are doing, it's taking like an extra month to get done or an extra month and a half or even two in some cases because of that. But our students are fine with that. And they realize that it's the delays for the manufacturers to get quotes in China. But, you know, with regards to the, the new year, the same thing can happen that's been happening during COVID. It can take your company that's showing interest in the product a little longer to get the quotes. And thus they'll be a little longer to close the deal because they want to verify they can make it and make it a reasonable price. But that's, that, that happens every year with Chinese New Year. So it's not even something you should be thinking about. You just move forward, guns blazing, getting in at all the companies and, you know, and show that you're knowledgeable when New Year's is and say, oh, I realize if, if one of the things they're doing, they don't always do this, but if one of the things they're doing is getting some quotes in China, say, I realize with Chinese New Year might take you a little longer. Did you have any feedback on that? They're like, oh, this person's very professional. They actually know that that affects our manufacturing, if you will. Um, so I would not even think about it except to be understanding of the company um, when they, when they say, Oh, we're going to have a little, might take a little longer because of Chinese new year. Um, uh, so T Tanya said, so is a worldwide patent search something that has to be done before filing a PPA? No, absolutely not. It's not something that has to be done. Um, Cause a, a provisional patent, you know, it's, it only costs you 75 bucks and allows you to say patent pending and reach out to companies. If you believe that there are some serious um, issues based on your own basic patent searching, or maybe more importantly, just doing a market search and finding similar things, seeing a patent number on their product, then looking it up and reading through the claims and go, Ooh, I think this could be a problem. Maybe there's other ones. I do recommend doing a worldwide search as opposed to just a U.S. search. You might as well go worldwide if you're going to do a U.S if you're going to do a patent search. Um, but also, if you, like, we have trainings inside our membership site for our students on how to do a patent search. I always advise our students to do the best patent search they can on their own first. And, and then if they're going to have somebody do it, then somebody else can, you know, a pat, professional patent searcher can do because you can show them everything you found and they can take it to the next level. Um, a lot of people, like, they think spending 500 bucks on a patent search and they give – a lack of information to their patent searcher and the patent searcher only spends two hours on it. They think, Oh, everything is clear and you do not count on that. So you could pay for a patent search. Do not think that it's a 100% assurance that there isn't something that is an issue. Now, most of our students don't even bother doing a patent search. Most of the time they do a market search. They go, no, this is viable based on the marketplace. They file the PPA and just move forward to see if the company shows interest. You don't want to have to pay for a professional patent search every time you come up with an idea. So it's amazing how rarely 
prior art or prior patents is a problem for our students. It really, it really is very rare. It does happen once in a while, but it's very rare. So I think people, the invention promotion companies do this. They say they're going to do a patent search and the inventor falsely believes in their head like, oh, with the patent search came, came out good, everything is good. The product makes sense. It's a reasonable product. It's reasonably manufactured. The whole thing makes sense. It doesn't validate any of that. It just validates there's no other patents that are going to be an issue or a conflict. But people get a false sense of confirmation from a patent search that it shouldn't give you. The market search to look at what's in the marketplace and go, oh, here's all the other products in the general space of my invention. That is way more important than the patent search. It validates the product, you know, so that's way more important. That's something that we beat into our students quite a bit. And it's, it's very valuable advice, I think. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, BevC333. Hi, Andrew. And by the way, type in your first name if you can, so I don't have to read the silly screen names, but either way, I'm always fine with. Um, hi, Andrew. Say I have a unique airplane design for a plunger-style cookie cutter. Okay. A unique airplane... <laughs> okay. I say I have a unique airplane design for a plunger-style cookie cutter. My airplane is unique but wouldn't I still be infringing on the plunger style cookie cutter if I had a patent? Okay, you airplane, cookie cutter, I'm confused. I think you're meaning, um, okay, so that it's an airplane design for a plunger style cookie cutter. Don't even know what a plunger style means. Usually you just have a cookie cutter and you press down on it, it cuts. Maybe that's what you mean by plunger style. Uh, plunger style. Um, but I wouldn't, wouldn't I still be infringing if the plunger style cookie cutter, if it had a patent? Yeah, if it did, but cookie cutters have been around for eons. So if you see a ton of people with this type of cookie cutter, with this kind of handle, or maybe it has a mechanism even that gives a little bit and you see a ton of people doing it nine times out of 10, there is no patent. So again, it goes back to what I talked about earlier. Most products don't have patents. And most products, if they're if you're using a piece of it, you can do it just fine. And you just need to look at the products in the space. And yeah, I would do a patent search, definitely. Um, but most of the time, it's not an issue. It's that's that's such a stupid thing to hold anybody back. I'm not saying it's holding you guys back, but I've talked to inventors that they felt like that was holding them back, and they were just worried about that. You know. Um. Jeff said, had to watch a commercial before the show started. Yeah, YouTube's playing a lot more commercials these days. Sorry about that. I'm a big YouTube fan. I, I watch YouTube every night on my TV, um, different shows, and uh, just getting more. And they want you to pay like, I think like 12 bucks um, a month for the YouTube uh, subscription service. But I have to say, YouTube's been very good to us. I absolutely love the platform. So, you know, if they need to play an ad once in a while, not the end of the world, I think. Um, hopefully they don't, I don't think they play ads during a live stream ever. I've never, I've done live streams, watch other people's live streams. I don't think they ever do that. Maybe at the beginning, but not, uh, not during the live stream. Let me guys, let me know if you guys ever see that happen, come up during the live stream. Not that it matters one way or the other, but um, okay. I can't answer that JB. 
Uh, hi, if you're making a PPA, for example, on a gift card, how do you go about creating that PPA? I don't know. I don't know what you mean. You're, you're making a PPA on a gift card. Maybe it's a new type of gift card. Maybe it's used in a different way. Um, sometimes patents are, it, it's a utility patent, but the way intellectual property or patent attorneys refer to them is um, business method patents. So it's, it's actually just utility patent, but it's a business method. And so maybe you've got a unique gift card delivery mechanism, like this happens and this happens, and then you scratch something off here and then you insert it there or something. And so if, if there's some new process, I know this might not apply to you, JB, but I need to answer it for everybody, not just you. Um, if, if there's some new mechanism that you have that's going to apply, you talk about that process. If the actual card is different, you know, does it have, it, it needs to have new functionality. It has to have some sort of new functionality. So you talk about that functionality. So, um, and we do have some software called Smart IP that makes it easy to file provisional patents. It's included with our coaching program, but you can buy it separately on eventright.com too. Um, uh, Ian, Hi, Andrew, I have a tool, a tool invention that could be used either on its own or with accessories that I also have invented. Can I file a PPA that covers the entire system? Absolutely, you can. No, or do I file one for each part? No, there's no, they're all related. You can put it all into the same PPA. Um, absolutely. And again, anything I share tonight is not legal advice. Seek the services of an attorney. But I can tell you, we and our students put associated products into the same PPA all the time. Um, hi, Andrew. Thanks for the great Q&As of a product that relies heavily on the images of licensed movie characters. So there's something called fair use, and you can look it up on Wikipedia. And, you know, so you need to, and I told this, I don't know, it was like two or three Q&As ago. Um, we had this student that had a product, and it was a football product, and I had no idea the website didn't tell me. And he called me up one day in a panic because the NFL called and said, threatened him and said, you, you better take that thing down or we're going to sue you. Because he put up a website with NFL logos all over it. That's their brand. They own that brand. You can't take somebody else's brand and publicly um, put it up and associate your product with it. That's illegal. Um, that's a trademark violation. And now I told him, take it down right away. And he did. And they never got back to him and it was fine. So you never, ever want to do that. Make a public disclosure with somebody's brand um, or like movie characters and things. But privately showing a potential licensee in a sell sheet or a video that you're sending just to them is, 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 is okay under fair use laws. It needs to say something like, um, all the trademarks and logos in this piece are um, for illustrative purposes. We don't have permission to use them in any way, shape, or form. And the property of the respective trademark or copyright owners. And this, these, these logos and illustrations are merely for illustrative purposes. Okay? So when you privately show that, to a potential licensees, that is that okay? And make sure to put that disclaimer on there. Um, and that's under called fair use laws. But again, before you do anything, consult an attorney and go on Wikipedia and look up fair use. And you'll, you'll understand a little bit more about that. It seems a little gray at times to me, but I've never had a student get in trouble about that. So also, um, Ian, no, that wasn't Ian, that was Stephen. Um, Stephen, 
sometimes, you know, the inventor is just so excited about poking Mickey Mouse or whoever on there. And you should really show both that it could, you could have these licensed characters on there. But if it's applicable, again, I can't know without knowing your product, to do it in a generic way too. So they can see, oh, we could do it a generic way like for football, or you could do it with NFL logos. Or you could do it a generic way where it's cute with generic characters, or you could put Mickey Mouse on it. So sometimes it makes sense to show them that you could do both ge the generic and the branded version. Um, but pretty much don't expect a company to put brands that they don't already have or put brands on something that um, when they don't have to do any of that. So it's very obvious when you look at a company's product line, you know, if they have branded stuff. So for example, this may surprise a lot of you, you know, Disney doesn't do most of their products, their licensees do. So the companies, yeah, licensees. So the companies that are making a coffee mug or a t-shirt or whatever, they reach out to Disney, get permission, then they pay Disney a royalty. And you have to realize when you have a licensed brand, they have to pay you a royalty and they have to pay that brand a royalty. So it's usually okay to get a slightly lower royalty for yourself because you need to share that royalty with the big company, but they're going to sell so much more. You should be very happy about that. So, um, yeah. Is it okay to use characters like Spider-Man, et cetera, my cell sheet to demonstrate? You want to put that notice at the bottom that all, and this don't, you need to talk to an attorney. Don't do it just like I said it, but you know, that all trademarks and copyrights of the owner are the property of their respective owners. We claim no rights, nor are we associated with any of these. These are just for illustrative purposes. And that's again, privately just being showed via email to one person. Okay, that's a big difference in putting it up on the website like that student I mentioned a long time ago. And they got in trouble with the NFL, so don't do that. Um, let's see. Uh, Melanie, hi, Andrew. Always great to get information from you. InventRight has been one of my best co choices of my development 20 years. Thanks again. Thank you, Melanie. That was really nice you say that. Um, uh, Digi said, can you, we get this question all the time. Um, can you license to more than one company? Uh, yeah, but as I always say, and I'll just keep it short because we get this question every time, um, as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes. If they're selling on the exact same shelf in the exact same store, it makes no sense. Different geography, different distribution channel. One does a really low-end product, one a really high-end product in different places, then it's possible. But don't think that you're just necessarily going to earn more money by doing a deal with multiple companies. One big company can do the trick most of the time. And a lot of times it just doesn't make sense to do a licensing deal with more than one. But a percentage of the time it does. So, But don't think, oh, I'll make less money. Because the whole point of licensing is you can dream and think big. And you can license to these big companies because they're huge and you're I, I always joke that you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing and you're not delusional because they are huge. They can do 10,000 units, 50,000 units, half a million units. It depends on the product, right? And that's not craziness. But for you to start your own company with one product from scratch, that's, that's a tough one. And get to those volume levels, if you know what I mean. Um, 
Sean says, when is a good time to stop following at the company? They wanted to see my product. I showed them. Um, I followed up once or twice and haven't heard anything back at all. I, I wouldn't stop following up with them. Um, you know, but don't hit them up every day. Um, what I would do, Sean, is drop them an email and say, if, and when you when you when you drop them an email, make sure to reattach everything. Show the whole email chain. Okay. Don't say, oh, I sent it to you. Can you look at it? And then you didn't reattach it. Make it easy for them. And what I, the other thing I would do also is just say, you know, hey, if it's not a right match, just reply, not a right match. Make it easy for them to say no so you can move on. But be persistent with getting that no, but directly ask them at this point to give you a no by saying, hey, if it's not a right match, just reply, not a right match. No need to say anything more than that. Um, you know, and do something like that. Because a lot of people, they, they're actually, they're nice, but they're kind of not being nice to you because, you know, oh, well, I don't want to say no, you know, and it's like, well, now that's wasting your time. It, it's better if you, if you got even somebody that's a little abrasive and says, no, great, I can move on from that one company now, right? Um, so ask, ask them directly to say no. If it's not a right match, make it easy for them. Um, let's see. Uh, Vincent says, hi, Andrew. Hope to shake your hand one day. Me too, Vincent. We used to go to trade shows all the time before the pandemic, and now that's that's out. But hopefully we'll get back to that soon. I have a question, and we would meet up with our students at various different trade shows, like SuperZoo, CES, Hardware Show, Houseware Show. I think those are some of the major shows we meet up with our students, and it was always a lot of fun. Um, so I miss that, and I hope we can get back to that. Um, I had a question. What do you say to people who are working with a secondary company that takes a percentage of your equity? I, I think it's always best that the inventor goes directly to companies. Um, most, uh, I mean, if you're licensing, I, I really don't know personally of, of a legitimate licensing agent outside the toy business that I've, where I've met an inventor and that inventor said, Oh, this agent licensed my product for me. I've, Never talk to somebody in 21 years outside the toy business where that's the case. Because the reason why I say toy business, because in the past, it's getting away from that too now. Um, you know, you kind of needed a toy broker to get into toy companies, but you don't anymore. And toy brokers are a dying breed. So, And there were a lot of legitimate, decent toy brokers out there. But for the most part, what I've seen when you're looking for somebody to do it for you, they'll usually ask you for a large chunk of money and ask for a percentage of the royalties. And it's a sales ploy quite often to get that 10 or 12 grand out of you. And it just goes nowhere. I can just tell from my personal experience, I've never met an inventor in 21 years that has had an invention promotion company license a product for them personally. I've never met, and we, but every other day I talk to somebody that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand. So um, I think it's a hell of a lot better that you go it on your own and you go directly to the company so you know what's going on. That's like, oh, well, we can't, we've been showing it, but we can't say who we showed it to. It's like, what? That's ridiculous. Um, let's say, Waleed, hey, Andrew, is it better to make an email with a professional name or my personal email in communications with companies? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I like that, Waleed. Um, you know, I wouldn't make it like Happy Beach at Hotmail. Um, 
Generally, Hotmail is a severely degraded email service. I've had students that email companies using Hotmail. They got back to the companies and said, hey, I just want to check if you're interested. And they're like, what are you talking about? We sent you three emails. You didn't respond. And their email that the company sent to the inventor that used a Hotmail, it literally, it didn't go into their spam folder or promotions folder. It went off into the ozone. It was nowhere to be found. So I don't trust Hotmail at all. Whenever I see one of our students trying to use a Hotmail, I say, don't. Anything else is better. Um, so that's just a little side tip. You know, I'm not like the biggest fan of Google or what have you, although I am a giant fan of YouTube. But Gmail is a much more reliable service. But you can go with any other service as well that is reliable. I just wouldn't use Hotmail. Um, but, you know, Happy Beach at Hotmail is not good or even Happy Beach. At, you know, so I would always use your get yourself a new Gmail or a new email account where literally all you do is just for licensing. You don't want an important email to get trapped with your important personal email. OK, so and what Steve and I have been telling our students for a long time, just uh, let's see what your what your name is. So your your name's kind of long, but <laughs> um you know, you, you, if you use your full surname, you know, like for both for your company and your email. So Andrew Krauss, so I use Andrew Krauss Designs at Gmail. And then I could put Andrew, if you use your full surname in every most states that I know of in the U.S., then you don't need to file a fictitious business statement. But of course, check in your each state to find out if that's true. But you could use Andrew Krauss Designs, Andrew Krauss Designs at Gmail, product developer. Then you have your cell phone, which they'll almost never call. They always email. And it doesn't have your kids screaming on it. And it's like, hi, this is Andrew Krauss from Andrew Krauss Designs. Please leave a message at the beep. Just sounds professional. All your friends and family will know it's you. So I, I do recommend um, not using a personal sounding email for your business. But you don't have to get a domain name in a website. That's a waste. It's not. Just use your sell sheet. And if you ever insist on getting a website, don't put your products up there. Um, it's, it's, you don't want them getting distracted looking at other things. You just want them looking at what you're sending right now. Um, so that would be my advice there. That was pretty long advice for a simple question. Um, let's see. Uh, do you have any, JB says, do you have any info on doing a PPA on apps? You know, it's when you're doing a, a provisional patent on apps, it's kind of like a process. It's like a flow chart, like this happens and then this happens and this happens. So that's really general advice, but that is something that I've seen a lot of people do. And again, that's not legal advice. It's just something I've seen people do, JB. So hopefully that's helpful. It's like a flow chart series of, of things. It's similar in a lot of ways to a bit of a business method patent a little bit. Um, I don't know what this question is, Melissa. Uh, Melissa, is ready me, ready me, something I can sign up with when trying to license my product and I only have a prototype? I don't know what ready me is. So I'm not sure. If you want to clarify, Melissa, I'll, I'll try to page down and grab that a little bit later. Um, uh, Nick says, hi, Andrew, if I need help programming and make a simple accelerometer, where would you suggest finding the resources to help? So the question is, Nick, do you need to build that prototype with the accelerometer? Or is it something that the potential licensee would go, oh, yeah, we understand that, you know, 
Um, we, we, we know that that could be done, you know? So the question is, which I don't know what your product is and don't share it publicly, but, um, you might not need the prototype you think you do, and you can make a sell sheet showing the benefit of the product and all the aspects that are pretty clear. Um, but you know, you could, to answer your question, if you're technically capable, you might be able to rip it out of another product or modify another product or talk to an engineer that could buy the component for you, but then it starts to get complicated. Um, if I need help programming and making a simple accelerometer. So the, the big question is, do you need to do the programming? and do the accelerometer, those things sound expensive. Um, could you just sell the benefit, get the interest? And if you didn't get any interest, you didn't spend all that money. Now, sometimes working on a prototype can be very beneficial. It can help you refine the product. So we're not like anti-prototype, but a lot of people, that's just a foreign concept to think that you could actually not make the prototype. And if you're fairly certain it could be done, but you're just having a hard time doing it, that you could just pitch the benefits of the product, see what the interest level is, and then later do this work after you get some interest. And so that's a foreign concept to a lot of people. So I always like to make that point. Um, uh, Sebastian, hey, Andrew, when making a video for a company, do you have any advice? I'm thinking of making a minute video instead of a sell sheet. Yeah, um, I'm gonna take a sip of water and then I'll give you some advice. So my advice is, um, a video isn't necessarily what everybody thinks it is. So first off, you can shoot it on your iPhone or your Android phone or your iPad or what have you. And there's some great tools these days. If you're on a Mac, iMovie is very easy. There's some tools you can use to edit. I would think the phone would be really um, cumbersome to edit on there. But if it was an iPad or an Android tablet, there's some really cool tools you can actually edit on those. I haven't used them, but I've heard that. Um, so another thing that I, a tip that I'll give you is a video isn't necessarily a video. Um, so what I mean by that is it's not all moving videos necessarily. Like you could have a still image and then you could have somebody narrating. You could have a still image go up. This is what the product looks like. And just as an example, you could have some sort of rendering done or something. And it's, this is what it wants to look like. It's up there. There's a narrator talking a little bit. After about four seconds, it disappears. You're showing, let's say it's a dog toy. You're showing throwing the dog toy. Now you showed the picture of it before and they're like, oh, that's what it is. And in the video, the prototype you're using literally is duct taped to death. But, you know, because it's kind of at a distance, but you're showing the dog having fun playing with it, maybe they even see a fair close up and see it's crude, but they're like, oh, that's what it is. So you can do these sorts of things and it's okay. And sometimes you can fake, you know, these things. So the way you shoot it, like the product's not finished, it doesn't even work, but you're showing removing this component and doing this and then that and that. And they're like, oh, that's how it works. So you're not lying. You're not being deceitful. You're showing them the benefit of the product and how it works. Right. And you're like, oh, I know they can make this. I just don't want to spend five grand on a prototype to make it myself. So these situations can vary tremendously from person to person and product to product, depending on their budget. But just because you have money doesn't mean you should spend it. So this is the type of thing that our coaches talk to our students about. We help them figure out how to get away with as little as possible, but not, in, not that would ever hurt them. Because I don't see doing a marketing piece where the product looks great would ever hurt them because you get interest. And companies are, oh, you don't have a production-ready product. Oh, take a hike, buddy. I don't want to talk to you again. They're not going to do that. you know. And if they were too lazy to help you out, 
lazy is the wrong word. They just don't, they're not in the right headspace. They don't want to do it right now, whatever the reason is. They'll wait months for you to take care of it. They won't even be thinking about it, but then you'll come back. But you want to kind of quite often get on and talk with them and verify the interest level and all these things because you don't want to go out and spend two grand on a prototype. You come back and they're like, eh, nah. You know, <laughs> so you want to kind of vet them more. So don't think that even after you get interest, that the very first thing to do is run out and get a prototype if they're insist if they're saying that they want that. You want to try to get more info out of them. And what maybe they have some feedback on what they'd like to see and make you make prototypes that they want, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, Sebastian, you can make a video and it can be kind of like a cell sheet. It could be nothing but still images with the narration. It could have captions with no um, narration. It could be a combination of still images and, and narration. It could be super short. It could be 10 seconds. It could be up to a minute, 60 seconds. We really advise people never to do more than a minute, but some people just insist and they end up doing a minute and a half or something. But I really advise you guys to keep it under a minute. So those would be my, my tips. Um, <laughs> Drona said, yeah, Disney Plus is going up as well. You referring to the, the cost of having like a YouTube subscription so you can get rid of the ads. I know that. Um, big fan of streaming media. I have Disney Plus, Hulu, um, Netflix. I use use YouTube as well. But I kind of like I'll can't like I cancel. You can put your this is a silly little tip. You can put your YouTube your uh, Hulu subscription on hold just with one click and then repause it. Like my wife and I will binge watch like Netflix. Like why do I need Hulu? Um, now, it doesn't cost much of anything, Hulu, so that's almost silly. But uh, but some of the other services are getting more expensive. I think my Netflix, I'm on the premium one, and they're they're taking it up to 18 bucks a month now um, for the Ultra HD. I don't even know if I need that. Um, but uh, And then the U YouTube's like, I think it's like $11.99 or something just to not get ads on YouTube. I don't know if that's worth it. Um, Let's see. Uh, just a little random non-inventing talk there for a second. Um, okay. Uh, Avid Faith Designs. When is the recommended time to address an improvements clause at the time of the NDA or the license agreement? When and if the time comes? That's a dicey thing, and I can't answer that because I definitely don't want to give you an answer, Avid. Um, <clears throat> on here because it, the answer is it depends. Um, you can really freak a company out saying that you own any improvements, especially before they've seen the product. But if they've seen the product and they're not working on anything similar, you know, you, you could ask them and you're gonna be sending a prototype or something. Um, I would discuss it with them ahead of time. Um, it best, I'm just giving general advice here. It depends on the situation so they don't freak out. And definitely I would something that taught be talked about after you've made contact and they know they like your, your, your product. But again, anything I share tonight is not legal advice. Um, so, and, and yeah, that is something you could definitely um, put in the licensing agreement that you own any improvements. You have to, you have to define the scope of things. You have to look at what other products are doing. It's really not fair if, it's just like I had this one student once and they just wanted to own everything in that space. I'm like, so you basically want to own anything they're ever going to come up with, even in that space that's 
not even remotely related to your product, I, I, that's not cool. And we advise them not to, not to do that. Um, Nicholas, uh, hi, Andrew. Do you have students licensing inventions with a single PPA for multiple products? For example, say you invented something for cutlery, but later you see that it can work elsewhere but related. Uh, so do you have students licensing inventions with a single PPA for multiple products? You know, we got this question the other time too. Um, I'm actually going to have patent attorney Jacob Ward on. I think I'm interviewing him tomorrow and that'll go up uh, non-live stream. And um, I'm going to ask him that question. I've got a bunch of PPA questions that I think you guys will really like. Um, but I really don't recommend like putting a, a ice skating product in the same PPA as you're putting a gardening trowel. That's pushing it. Um, but I'm going to ask him that question. So why don't I ask him that question tomorrow? That video might not be up for a week, but then you guys can watch it and you get an answer from a patent attorney. I pretty much know what his answer is going to be, but um, but I, I don't recommend that. Um, but if it's if you're then covering it for another industry, you could have the same product and you could talk about how that you mentioned it was something for cutlery, I think. Yeah, how it could be used in many different ways. You want to include all the variations, workarounds, improvements. So if you believe this one product can be used in many industries, you could do definitely do it in the same PPA. But if it's two completely unrelated products, I think some people just ask that question because they're like, well, you know, if I file 10 provisional patents, that's $75 times 10, that's 750 bucks. And yeah, if you're really prolific, that could add up, but good on you if you're working on that many projects. And we do have students that do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't want to answer the question uh, too specifically because, um, because I think it's pushing it a little bit. Um, so let's see. Uh, oh, uh, Mike says, hi, Andrew. Does the head of the line privileges for age 75 to 80 years old apply for both design and utility patents? I, I believe it does. And so if you're beyond a certain age, I don't know if it's certain health criteria, you can get an expediated patent without having to pay the expediated patent fee. So I do believe it applies to both design and utility patents. And, and I, don't, I don't remember what the age is. Um, but if you're older, um, I would definitely take a look at it. It's kind of cool. But, you know, and I'll say something that will shock you guys. Sometimes it's better that it still says pending because they can't see it. You know, so it's it, don't think like getting the patent sooner is this great, tremendous advantage. It can be if a company cares about it, but some companies, they just don't care. They're OK. Patent pending issued. I don't care. You know, we just want to say patented on it. So but if you are older, make sure to look that up and see. And you can just call the 800 number at the patent office and ask them. It's a question they can very easily answer. They're very helpful and you'll be surprised. I would say you guys should just do that, ask some random question, and you'll be like, damn, they're so helpful. I didn't think a government agency could be so helpful. But the patent office is actually funded with your patent fees. So they're independent. And actually, other government agencies once in a while in the past have sucked money out of the patent office, which really is uncool, in my opinion. So because they're self-funded, they're, they're more like 
entrepreneurial to say, put a word there. They, 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 they're customer oriented um, and they want to take care of their customers. So you'll be surprised if you call them and ask a random question like that, how helpful they are. Um, Well, Leed said, hi, Andrew, how do we overcome communications with highly busy people that aren't answering my emails or phone calls? Um, that's just normal. And I don't know what you mean by they're not answering. So first of all, nobody answers phone calls, um, emails. Um, you know, you just have to keep working on it, you know, uh, and get used to it. Keep approaching more of companies if you haven't reached out to them all. Um, and then just keep, you know, hitting up. The, the ones that aren't responding. You can't email them every day. And again, um, you can also, I don't know if you're reaching out to them. It sounds like you're just reaching out to make initial contact. You know, it's the way you state things. You can say, you know, who you could just, even though you know it's them, right? So marketing manager, you know, is a good chance it's them, but you can ask for them to direct you to somebody that can look at it. And then they can take the opportunity, say, oh no, that's me. Or they can say, oh, and they can pass the buck and introduce you to somebody else. So, well, lead, it's, it could be the way that you're approaching things. Um, and, you know, really, you should be, if you're licensing, you should be using LinkedIn. You should be using the phone. And you should be using email. If you're not trying to get in all three ways, you're not trying to, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Now, I know that we've done some marketing with uh, our LinkedIn for licensing program, smart pitch, cold calling is dead. It is totally 100% not dead. We have students all the time that will get, they'll be in a certain industry or a certain group of companies and they're just not on LinkedIn. You need to pick up the friggin' phone and call. You cannot go, well, I don't wanna make a call, I'm afraid. You have to call and you have to LinkedIn message. Some of them will be responsive to the phone calls. Some of them will be responsive to LinkedIn. Some of them will be responsive just to an email. You can figure out their email format, like first name dot last name at email dot XYZ company dot com. And you can drop them an email. And again, you should just ask them if they'd be the right person or not, or if they can direct you, even though you know they're probably the right person based on their title. So you should really be doing all three. Um, okay. Uh, Dr. Earth said, my first no. Exclamation mark. Yeah, you should you should be smiley face. My first no, smiley face. That's what it should be. Um, if I submitted an idea through a company website, for example, Hasbro Spark, and they said no, does that mean there are no other options for this particular company? In this case, Hasbro. Um, no, it doesn't mean there are no other options. Um, you could try to get in through other channels, but that is the channel they want you to come in through. And they have told us we had the CEO come on, that they do look at all that. So, um, you know, they, they gave you a no. They looked at the product. They gave you a no. You should be very happy about them looking at it. And you need to move on to their companies. You know, if they said no through that program, I think that's a no. That's, that's, that would be my answer. Um, doesn't mean it's a no for you to submit other products. It also, here's a tip, doesn't mean it's a no for you to submit the same thing six or eight months later. You might just get a different person looking at it, different vibe. Maybe they're looking for that type of product eight months from now. They weren't looking for it right now. So I wouldn't hesitate to send it again if they're, if Hasbro is one of your favorite companies. But don't sit around waiting to do that. Show it to a whole bunch of other companies. 
Uh, Jeff said, should we have an LLC for each invention? Well, that would be pretty silly, but I can't be your financial or liability advisor. I mean, just as a random thought, I've never talked to anybody about this, but if you had a lot of money and you wanted to limit your liability, um, you could have an LLC for each product you license. But to be honest, I mean, and again, this is not legal advice. This is not um, liability protection advice, but if you just empty out your LLC when you get your royalty every time, it's that that's an empty shell of a company, you know? And so if they sue that LLC, there's no money there. And who wants to sue you, the independent inventor? Like, I've never had that happen in 20 years. I've never had um, even a student, because you, you insist that you're covered under their product liability insurance when you license to a big company. I've never had a company tell an inventor, Oh, with your ladder product, we got sued, and now we're having to use our product liability insurance. I've never seen that either. Um, so, you know, if you, yeah, I don't know. I guess you could do an LLC for each invention, but I don't see that as being necessary. In some states, each LLC can be expensive. You know, in California, it's 800 bucks a, a year. Um, in Nevada, it's about 300, you know, with all the different fees. In some states, it's 20 bucks, 40 bucks. But um, because it's an empty shell and you could always renegotiate the contract if you had to let that LLC go under, um, you know, that's just, it's an interesting thought, but I've never had it be a problem in 21 years. Um, also, another thing that shocks people, I've never in 21 years had the year the provisional gives the inventor to be an issue. So what happens is when you file a full utility, your patent attorney will reference the provisional. Only if that one year was an issue will they ever, will anybody ever look at your PPA? I've never had that happen in 21 years. And I, I bet it we could go another 20 and it won't happen. And we've had students in over 60 countries. People are shocked by that. But just in case, you know, you do a good job writing your PPA, but I've never had that happen. The attorney will write the full patent and they'll reference the provisional and anything that was in there, you'll be protected for. And sometimes you just covered with a picture or covered with some words, and it's all up to interpretation. But do a good job with your PPA. But when you know that it's never happened before, you know, kind of makes sense to not completely obsessed with your PPA, right? Uh, Hangour, um, Han Auger. One, uh, Andrew, thanks to you and InventRight, I'm not a student, but your videos push me to move forward with one of my ideas of Red Steven's book, and now I'm about to apply for my first PPA. That's great. Hey, Hannah, Hanauger, there you go. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, I talked to a student today that was just a fan of ours, and so this might be very encouraging for you guys. And, and he did a deal on a railroad product. It had a product to do with railroads. And this was a crazy um, story, but it, he did that deal like almost five years ago and it's only coming to market now. And the reason why we just found out about it now is because there's so many regulations with uh, transportation and trains that it took that long to get approval, but it got approved. It's on their website. I was just talking to him earlier today. He said he sent over a picture of himself and the product. And, and that also goes to the fact that 
Sometimes people think we just do consumer products. We got people doing commercial, industrial products. I this guy licensed a, a drill bit for drilling into the earth the size of a small car. And, and so then I got this student that just, not student, fan actually, he's a fan just like you guys. And he just licensed a railroad product. And he's been watching us forever. And so, um, so it, it can definitely be done. So hopefully that's encouraging for all of you. Um, doo -doo -doo, let's see. Okay, Nick. Hi, Andrew. One of my products is now in the public domain, patented in 1992, never produced. Is this a reason to halt and redesign the product or continue an attempt to get it on the shelf? Well, you know what I would say, Nick, if you believe it's a viable product, I would go for it regardless. So I don't know one of my products. I don't know if you're saying you got a patent in 1992, in which case that would be 28 years ago you got a patent and now it's public domain because the patent expired. Or if you're saying that it was somebody else that got the uh, that got the patent, and so if if somebody else got the patent, that's that's public domain. So or you doesn't matter either way. So if you've got some little improvement, that base product patented in 1992, anybody can do that. But you got a hinge on the right side, and it provides this functionality, and that wasn't covered in that patent in 1992. You can get protection on that. And you can license it, but it's not about getting protection. More importantly is, does it make it a marketable product? So if you believe whatever change you made to the product, whether it was your patent or somebody else's, that that is viable in the marketplace first, and then you can go get a provisional patent on that improvement, then go for it. It's If you think it's a marketable product, that would go for it. Um, Let's see. Ari, I have a new toy, an outdoor game. What should I do? I think Otto that licenses, he just licensed, he's one of our students, former students. He licenses seventh outdoor game. Um, it's pretty simple. You're going to, Ari, you're going to approach companies that make outdoor games. Of course, everything else we do, you file a provisional, you work on your sell sheet or video and you make your list of companies, not an anemic list of two or three, but preferably 20 or 30. Okay, some companies, you only have 12. Okay, but when our coaches help our students, quite often for most products, it's 20 or 30. And inventors on their own, they make a really anemic list because they don't know how to go about that. Um, so don't make an anemic list, but do all the regular stuff. You're going to approach companies that do, that do those types of products. Um, Let's see. So Zam said, I emailed a contact, asked for permission to send materials. She responded, yes, go ahead and send me what you want included, including who you have worked with. I have not yet worked with anyone. My response, question mark. Okay, I, I think I don't, Zam, I, I think I find that when inventors approach companies and they don't know how to do it in the right way, that companies have weird questions in response because the inventor didn't make it clear. So Zam is saying, and I'm not saying you didn't make it clear, Zam, it might be they just have a weird question, but Zam said, can I send you materials? 
And the company said, yes, or the individual in the company said, yes, go ahead and send me what you want, including who you have worked with. So I, I would just, this is one thing that you need to learn. A lot of times you don't need to give them what they're asking for. You need to give them what you know that they need. And I would just ignore that, Zam, and I would just send them your sell sheet. <laughs> I don't know what they mean by including who you've worked with. I have no idea. But I would make it clear that you, you want to license with them. So they might think, oh, they're trying to sell me this product. And so they're like, where where's your product show up? What retail stores? And, and you can clarify and say, no, I'm looking to license this to you. You would manufacture and license, pay me a small royalty. Okay. Um, Let's see. Uh, there was a question. Uh, Barry's asking about our design studio manager. Barry, can you email me that personally at Andrew and InventRight? And I'll answer your question or forward it over to Lindsay. Um, okay. Uh, Okay, Sean said a company had a good amount of interest. Sounds like you guys are reaching out. That's great for you guys. But they said they would get back to me uh, late January because of the holidays and a big assignment they're working on. Should I remind them closer to the end of January? Yeah, just reach back out to them at that time. Be respectful, but don't hesitate to reach out to every other company. They, they, give you, they were great. They give you a specific reason why. That seems very reasonable. That doesn't actually seem like that far away. Um, late January. That's not ridiculous in licensing time. Um, you know, as Americans, some of you aren't Americans, but as Americans, we've become, and people abroad too, become very, very impatient with being able to get instant gratification on everything. That will not happen with licensing. And you need to be okay with that. Um, uh, uh, Tarrett is asking, how many students are there per class in the group course? Yeah, so we have a group program called Academy, which is less expensive than our one-on-one -on -one coaching, Tarrett. And, and, you know, I don't know how many people are currently in there. I haven't been in there lately. Matthew is in there Tuesdays, and Paul is in there on Thursdays, and they're two of our coaches. They're fantastic. Um, you know, I think... Before recently, it was a little bit smaller. Sometimes there would be 10 or 12 or 15, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's like 20 in there now, but it's an hour every Tuesday and every Thursday. With the Academy, there's no email or phone support. There isn't one-on-one, -on -one, but it's group coaching. But that's two hours a week to get your questions answered, which is really cool. But you're right. There are other people in there, so you can't completely dominate the hour. you got to listen to other people's questions, learn from their questions. It is definitely more personable than this because everybody's on video and the coach is right there. And so it's definitely – and then all the students have watched our training videos, and they're guiding along the students. Um, our training videos inside our membership site, not the YouTube, which are a lot more succinct and, and direct. Although I think our YouTube show is great. If you guys, some of you haven't watched it, I would check it out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this I'll finish up on this because this is fun. Matt said, hey, Andrew, can you say hi to my sisters, Maxine and Margo? They're, they're first-time viewers. Thank you. Yes, Maxine, Margo, welcome. Um, welcome, welcome, and thank you for, for attending. 
Matt's a good old friend of mine. Um, so <laughs> thank you, Matt. Um, let's see. Sam said, thanks. That's what I did. I just sent the materials. I've gotten into multiple companies and no one else asked me that before. Yeah, sometimes you just get an oddball, Sam. Who else you've worked with? Just just send them the just send them your cell sheet or your video and you'll you'll be fine. Um, and then I'm just gonna uh, Hank Hanauger um, just expanded on his prior question. LLCs versus sole proprietorship, any thoughts on which is better? It's just me. I have no employees or partners. We always tell our students when you do a licensing deal, you don't have to do it before you do the deal. But when you do a licensing deal, you should always, always file, if you're in the United States, file an LLC or a corporation to protect yourself. You've never had it be an issue, but you always want to do it. And you can do it in the midst of your first deal. Uh, Sean said, thanks, Andrew. This has been great. You're a huge help to the success of many aspiring inventors. Thank you. I would hope so. We've been doing this for 21 years. So, um, But I really enjoy doing these Q&As. We've been doing it ever since the pandemic started. Um, I think there was only one Monday I missed. Um, we're going to miss a couple here. Let me give you guys a heads up. Um, the one on the 28th. And then... I guess that's the only one month for Mondays. Yeah. Just the one on the 28th and then I'll be back on the fourth. So um, I'm going to take a little bit of a vacation, which I never take. I'm a bit of a workaholic. So I want to thank you guys um, for those, those of you that are new. I want to welcome you. Make sure to watch more of our YouTube videos, not just the live chat right here. And I want to thank everybody for returning. And I want to thank you for your support. And um, I want to remind you guys to take care and keep inventing. And we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.